help me read today, so they, got, they have to be able to hear you. Is that okay? Can you do that? You didn't know you were going to get a microphone today, huh? How are you guys doing? Good. You doing good? All right. Well, I'm going to ask Carson to go ahead and start off by reading us a couple passages. And actually, you guys don't know this, but what we're doing is I'm having you be an example in my sermon here in a few minutes. Does that sound good to you? Does that not sound good to you? You don't know. All right. Here's what I want you to do right here, starting in verse 27. Read all the way to the end of it, okay? Can you do that for me? And hold that mic up real close so people can hear you. My sheep hear my, my voice. I know them, and I, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perch. No one will dash them out of my hand to me. Wait, my father who has given them him to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of, of the Father's hands. I he and the Father are one. All right. Good job, man. That was great. Yeah, give him a round of applause. That was awesome. All right. So I want you guys to see something, okay? Jesus says, my sheep follow me. Who are Jesus' sheep? Us. How do we know that? He's the shepherd. Yeah, so anyone that follows him is a sheep. So anyone that's given their life to Jesus are one of his sheep, right? And then he says his sheep are, where are they? You remember? Here. They're in his hand, right? Our sheep are in his hand. So we're going to use this. this. I wrote the word you on it. Can you see that? So this is you, right? And where, where are you? In the shepherd's hand, right? Now, where is Jesus? So it says, in the shepherd's hand, right? No one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, the father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So you are in Jesus' hand, and then his hand is in the father's hand. You, got, you think you can get that out of there? You don't think you can get that out of there? You can't snatch that away? You guys think you can get that out of there? So what's getting that out of there? Nothing, Right? That's Jesus's point. He's saying, hey, I love you so much that I am going to hold on to you and nothing can get you to let go, get me to let go of you. Does that, what does that mean? He won't let go. Nothing stronger than Jesus and God. We will forever be in the hand of Jesus when we put our faith in him and nothing can ever take that away. Okay. All right. That's going to come back up here in a few minutes. So I need you to listen closely. Can you do that for me? All right, you guys are free to go back to your seat. I'll put the microphone up for you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, you guys got that? Hold, hold on to it. Because I did it that way so that we could save time in the sermon and I don't have to go over the whole thing again, right? Um, as we get started, I should mention, I forgot to mention this, last Monday uh, we did services for Cecil Cook, who's a long-term member of this church who passed away, so these flowers up here uh, are in memory of, of him, so I just wanted to give that knowledge. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 5. We're in week two of our kind of sermon series this year. Um, Really, we're following these kind of five key themes that we've had. Life-giving, gospel-rooted, spirit-filled, community, and belonging. 
And so we're doing this sermon series over what does it mean to belong to God? And we said last week that everything and everyone universally belongs to God, that I get to claim that I'm an American, I get to belong to the, to the citizenship of the United States of America. You guys know what I did to become an American citizen? I was born here. I, I did nothing, and I don't know if America gained anything from it, but I am an American citizen because I was born here. In the same way, we all universally belong to God in that we were just born because of belonging to God, born into the image of God. Everything and everyone universally belongs to God, but God's desire is that we would move from just a universal belonging into an intentional belonging. So how do we intentionally belong to God? Last week we talked about how we intentionally belong to God through faith. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or income or gender or anything like that. It is only by putting our faith in the reality of God and Christ's death, Christ's death burial and resurrection. And so when we rightly understand what it means to intentionally belong to God as his church, as his sheep who follow him, then we begin to understand that God commissions us to go out into those who universally belong and draw them into an intentional belonging as well. Now, here's the complexity. This is what we're going to be exploring today. What happens when those, us, who intentionally belong to God misses the point? What's at stake when we fail to communicate what it really means to intentionally belong to God? And this seems to be Paul's biggest concern, or one of Paul's biggest concerns throughout his letter to the Galatians. Because in Paul's mind, if we can't get a firm grip on what it means to intentionally belong to God, then how can we ever go into the brokenness of the world and draw them into God? It's like, it's like, uh, it's like me trying to teach you how to golf. I love golfing. I mean, I, I love it. I know the lingo. I understand some basic fundamentals of, of golfing. I can look the part. I mean, I can dress up like a golfer. Um, I can say the right things and do all the right things. In fact, uh, when I lived in Socorro, our head deacon, who's the guy that kind of I credit to getting me probably too deep into golf. It's his fault, okay? But he was amazing at golf. He won the New Mexico Tech golf tournament, presidential's golf tournament, like five or six years running before he was like, I'm just going to let someone else win. Now, he was that good at golf. And when you win that tournament, the prize every year is a golf bag, like a really nice golf bag that says New Mexico Tech golf course on it. Um, and so whenever I first picked up golf, I had this really old golf bag, and he brought me into the house, and he opened a closet, and there was like six of these golf bags in there. He's like, I'm not using all of these. You can have one of these golf bags. Sweet. That's awesome. What I wasn't prepared for is when you walk up to the to the place at New Mexico Tech and you go to check in to the clubhouse and they see that you have that bag, oh, they treat you like royalty. I mean, they're like, this guy is a champion. So I would walk in with my bag, not a clue with what I was doing. And I would check in and they'd be like, you can go in front of these people. You go ahead, just do what you want to do. Don't worry about it, Philip. And I would get on the tee box and just like miss the ball completely, you know? I was thinking about that, right? Like, what if you came with me to Socorro and I was gonna teach you to golf? And I looked the part and I played the part and I talked the lingo and everything on the surface seemed really, really good. I still promise you by the end of the day, you would be far worse at golf than when you started. Because I would not instill the good things because I'm really not that good of a golfer. It's 
just not there. I'm not good. You can ask Wayne about this. The first time Wayne and I ever, I'm just telling you, the only reason Wayne is here is because had my shot been eight inches higher, it would have hit him in the head. I wish I was making that up. You can ask him about that story. So I, it's like that, right? It's like me trying to teach someone to play golf, and I look the part and act the part and think the part and speak the part, but I really don't understand what it means to play golf. And we can easily have similar things happen within the church where we miss what it intentionally means or what it means to intentionally belong to God. And then we try to invite people in, but rather than helping them understand, we actually end up doing more harm. Some of you even have stories like this. Stories of spiritual power abuse, stories of toxic churches that take advantage of people uh, that almost always stems from an improper understanding of what it intentionally means to belong to God. This is Paul's major concern. Paul's concern for the Galatians is that if they miss the purpose of the gospel and they take on a different purpose, then results can be catastrophic. So if you're here last week, we did an in-depth study of the context. This week, just really quick, Paul plants this church in Galatia. He leaves for a trip. While he's away, he gets word that this group of Jewish Christians, Jewish Christ followers, have come into the church. And they've begun to teach that real Christians have to take up all the ways of the Torah. They have to dress the right way, speak the right way, act the right way, do the kosher laws, celebrate the holidays, all of this. And to Paul, this flies in the face of what it really means to belong to Christ, of everything the gospel stands for. So according to Paul, placing your faith in the gospel, or in our context of this series, intentionally belonging to God, it does two things. The first thing it does is it saves you. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, a person is not justified or a person is not saved. We may say a person does not belong to God by the works of the law, but by faith. This is the only way that we can be saved is through faith. But it not only saves you, it also frees you. So Galatians 5.1 that we'll read today, it's for the sake of freedom that you have been set free. Intentionally belonging to Christ brings both salvation and freedom. Both of those things are vital, but they are not synonymous. They are vital. They are not synonymous. And in fact, if you try to read these two words in a way that makes them mean the same thing, it will write you into a theological fiasco. In fact, let me just read a little bit and we'll see if you can see the fiasco at play if you define it that way. Let me start off chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 8 uh, and then I'm going to skip a couple of verses down to verse 21. So, verse 8. But in the past, since you didn't know God, he's talking to the pagan Gentiles that came out of their paganism. Since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. He's going to go on and talk a little bit about his life and what he's done with the Galatians. But skip down to verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one born of a free woman was born through the promise. 
These things are being taken figuratively for the women present in these two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia that corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it's written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate woman will be many, for more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now, you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh uh, persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now... But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir of the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Chapter 5, for freedom, Christ set us free. So stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not be of any benefit to you at all. And again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. See, see some theological issues going on there? See some things that may make your brain go, What's, what does that mean? What's, what's happening there? We'll focus on a lot of this today, but let me just start right here at the very end. Because I think the fiasco, the theological conundrum, comes at the very end of the text, where Paul says, those who have started following the Torah have, and his quote is, fallen from grace. On the surface, that seems to communicate that if you do not behave the right ways or do the right things, then you might be susceptible to falling out of salvation. You might lose the grace that began at the cross. But if you believe that, that stands against everything Paul's been talking about up until this point and everything he talks about in all his other letters as well. So how do we make sense of this idea that if you take on the legalism of the law, you actually fall from grace? And in order to do that, we have to begin by understanding the foundation of salvation. So, intentionally belonging to Christ brings both salvation and freedom. When we talk about salvation, what we have to be sure we mention is salvation is secure. Intentionally belonging to Christ bring salvation, and that salvation is always secure. It's really interesting when people are asked and they do polls about why they were Christians, why they don't share their faith. There's always a myriad of answers. There's fear, rejection, cultural pressure, but typically somewhere at the top of that list is actually, I'm not really sure if I'm saved or not. And what I found is, when the average person sitting in the pew is unsure of where they stand with God, whether they're saved or not saved, whether they're going to heaven or not, when that's the biggest thing in their mind, it really doesn't matter what I preach about reaching the lost, it will not happen. And that makes sense because in that situation, the gospel is not good news. I mean, what does that conversation look like? Hey, you should come to church with me this week. Uh, we come in, we sing a bunch of songs, and then we all sit around and worry about whether God loves us or not. It's really fun. Come join us. Wow, sounds like great news, Philip. That, that's not the gospel, right? Gospel is the security of your salvation, the knowing that even if you were to try to let go of God, he has you 
grab because he loves you and he is the one that saved you. It is vital that we start here. Can you be certain of your salvation? We've already talked about one of the examples, right? John 10, this is you. You're in the hands of the shepherd, of Jesus, and he is in the hands of the Father, and nothing will snatch them away. But there's so much more in the Bible, and we can't hit everything here. So I'll leave you with that one that we've already talked about. And I'll take you to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking about this very thing, and he closes out this chapter, and he says in verse 38, For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we ask the question, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? The answer is an astounding nothing. Paul is going out of his way to explain nothing. And we can hit on all of those things, but the last one he lists is, nor any other created thing. And I would just ask the question, what are you? You are a created thing. Even you cannot revoke the forgiveness of Christ. It is only by his hand in his hand alone. Sometimes when I explain it, I explain it through the lens of relationship versus fellowship. I have two, two little sisters, um, and let me just say, growing up with two little sisters, is there always fellowship between a big brother and two little sisters? No. There is lots more of tears and crying and picking on them and all of that stuff. There were times growing up that I'm sure my sisters thought on multiple occasions, I wish like anything you were not my brother. But guess what? No matter how much they felt, felt that way, what was I to them? Their brother. In fact, to this day, if something just catastrophic happened and our relationship totally fell apart and I went to them and I said, you're not my sister anymore, I never want to see you again, does that really mean they're not my sister? No, the bloodline's still there. There's nothing I can do to change the reality of the relationship. Now, fellowship may come and go. It wanes, but the relationship is forever. It's the same with Christ, that once we are drawn into a relationship with Jesus at the cross in that faith, that relationship is constant and unchanging. Now, fellowship may come and go. You have the ability to fall into sin and to fall away, but the relationship of salvation is a constant. Here's my point in highlighting all of this. At any point, if we try to communicate a salvation which holds contingencies, we will always move from a biblical faith-based salvation to a man-focused, works-based salvation. And it usually looks something along the lines of where we control our relationship with God, not God controlling his relationship with us. So everything swings upon the contingencies of, are you in sin? Are you not in sin? Are you saved? Are you not saved? And that is not what the Bible communicates. See, I don't mean to be rude, and hopefully this doesn't offend you, but I'm just going to say it anyways. You are not strong enough, able enough. I might even use the word, you are not significant enough to add or subtract from the salvation that is offered at the cross of Jesus. You cannot add or take away anything from it. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus love you any more or any less. Your salvation is secure. So intentionally belonging to God brings secure salvation. Now that being said, it also brings freedom. And while salvation is secure, freedom is fragile. 
While salvation is secure, freedom is fragile. Paul's concern is not that the Galatians may lose their standing with God or the forgiveness of the cross or their salvation, but he does believe that they can lose their freedom in Christ. And in Paul's mind, what good is it to go and preach a freeing gospel, but then rather than bringing people into that freedom, we end up just enslaving them to something else other than Jesus. This is Paul's issue in chapter 4, verse 21. He says, or chapter 4, verse 31, he makes the mention, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ set us free. It's fascinating. I wish I had time to go into all of this text right here. But I think if you could have had this passage, particularly Roman, or Galatians 4.21, read aloud in a church where Jewish people were present, they may have tried to fight the person reading the text out loud. I mean, look at, look at what Paul says here. He says, verse 25, Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Okay, if you're a Jewish person, you have down to the T your generation so that you can trace back and prove I am of the tribe of Benjamin or I am of Judah and the lineage of David. This is why Joseph and Mary could say, I know to go to Bethlehem and I know I'm from the tribe of, of Judah. This is why Paul can say, I know I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. They would trace their lineage all the way back to Isaac and Abraham because it was that important to them. And now Paul's coming in and saying, hey, all those people in Jerusalem that say they trace their lineage back to Isaac, actually they go back to Ishmael. He's being figurative, but he's saying they are just as much slaves as the Gentile Romans. Because slavery is not about just sin, it's about anything that would seek to become God. So that can be sin and it can be the good moral code of the Torah. But in either case, if those things take the throne of God, it enslaves us. And Paul's saying what this people, what these people are doing is they're coming in and they're teaching you just a new form of slavery, but it's actually the exact same thing. What the gospel does is it brings us freedom. And we ask the question then, what, what is Freedom. And I would just say there's, there's a stark contrast between Jesus' conception of freedom, the Bible's conception of freedom, and the world's concept of freedom. In fact, I would argue that the world's idea of freedom is actually more in line with the Bible's idea of sin. That you could take the biblical definition of sin and the world definition of freedom, and it's the same definition, complete autonomy. That freedom is the ability to do whatever I want to do, be whoever I want to be, enjoy whatever I want to enjoy. And anyone that would seek to prevent that autonomy or question that autonomy is bad. When the Bible comes in, it says actually sin is complete autonomy. Sin is doing whatever you want to do, being whoever you want to be, enjoying whatever you want to enjoy. So from Genesis 3 onward, the command God gives is don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What he means by that is, don't try to define good and evil on your own terms. It will not work. You must trust me for that. You see, worldly freedom, biblical sin is complete autonomy, but biblical freedom is the way I'm going to define it, is the ability to trust in the reality of God and the control of God over all else. 
Freedom is aligning yourself, or maybe even better said, having yourself aligned to God's ways, God's truths, God's reality. And it's that freedom where we find hope. It's that freedom where we escape oppression and sin and the world and the oppression of also religion and legalism. Because in Paul's mind, falling into sin and falling into legalism actually lands you in the same pit. I have a little image I want to show you, and I'll have Kelsey put that up. Before I explain it, let me, uh, let me just walk you through a couple texts. Chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, Paul is mentioning we as the Jewish people when he's writing, we were children that were enslaved under the elements of the world. So before Jesus, even the Jewish people were enslaved to these elements of the world. And if you go down to verse 9, he changes it, and he says, Now, since you know God, or you, the Gentile Christians, know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? And he uses the same word, elements. In Paul's mind, it looks like you can be enslaved to the elements of legalism, or you can be enslaved to the elements of paganism and sin, but they're actually the same thing. Because both of them would seek to deny or break or cause you to fall from the freedom of God. So on one side, you might, through sin, fall into secularism or paganism. And that will enslave you every single time. And on the other side, you, you might fall into legalism. And likeliness is, and there's no one in here that's like, I'm really struggling with whether or not I should follow the Torah. I, I, my colors, my... my my linens, they, they have mixing colors. I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing that. That's probably not the legalism you're prone to falling into. But we do set up legalism in regards to purity. We set up legalism in regards to church culture. Legalism, legalism in regards to success. That it looks like these rules and following these rules. And in Paul's mind, if we as the church declare that to be the means of salvation, we are just as much enslaving people as the world is outside the church. Because it's not about the set of rules. So, we come back to chapter 5, verse 4. And Paul says, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You that are trying to find your significance in the law of the Torah have fallen out of grace. You have fallen from grace. See, I don't think this is a commentary on salvation whatsoever. But what Paul is saying is that anytime you fall into one of these two pits, you fall from living in grace. Meaning you fall from freedom. And when you fall from what it means to living in grace, you will be giving up your joy in Christ. You will be giving up your significance. You'll be giving up all the things with comes, that comes with what it means to enjoy and live in the freedom of Jesus. So here's, here's my point, and I'll wrap this whole thing up. Intentionally, belonging to God brings both salvation and freedom. Salvation is secure. Freedom is fragile. And, and likeliness is, you're going to have the tendency to fall one of those two directions, and a lot of that's going to depend on the generation you come from, the family you come from, the cultural norms you embrace, the personal worldview you hold to. But it's all the same pit, according to Paul. It's all the same pit, attempting to derive your own meaning, your own purpose, your own worthiness from something other than God, be it a set of rules or your own idea of how life should be lived. It is your personal religious instinct that places trust in self 
rather than in God. And in both cases, it's what we could probably refer to as religion. There's a book called Secularosity. It's by a guy named David Zal. Z-A-H-L, if you're ever interested. But the idea of this book is he's taking the word secular and he's putting the word religion within it. Um, and he's saying, hey, our secular world is actually just a new form of religion. And he says, our Christ-given freedoms are constantly at risk at being uh, taken captive or taken away in our own attempts to justify our own, exempt, our, our own existence. And what he says is, he says, we're at risk because we always want to try to make ourselves enough. That's what we're all looking for. I mean, tune your ear to the word enough in conversations around you, and likeliness is you'll find that everyone is scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desirable enough, good enough. And so we keep pushing towards those benchmarks of enough, thinking that finally when we're successful enough, we'll have found our, our happiness and our joy only to realize that the vindication and love we thought we would find weren't really there, and we have to keep pressing onward. So in reality, what we find is anxiety and exhaustion. So he says, our religiosity, be it modern secularism or traditional legalism, will enslave us. Here, here's a quote from his book. Religion in real life is more than a filter or a paradigm. It is what we lean on to tell us that we're okay and that our lives matter. Religion, another name, it's another name for all the ladders we spend our days climbing toward a dream of wholeness. Religion refers to our preferred guilt management system. Our religion is the justifying story of our life. It's that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, but for enoughness. So wherever you are most tired, look closely, and you will likely find self-justification at work. You will find the drive to validate your existence, to assert your lovability via adherence to some standard of enoughness, be it behavioral or conceptually given or invented. It's a big mouthful. But in other words, what he's saying is we are at risk at falling from grace and freedom offered by Christ into the slavery of our own self-fulfillment. That once I get that degree, I'll be enough. Once I get that person's approval, I'll be enough. Once I make that position, I'll be enough. Once I get that pay raise, I'll be enough. Once I buy that car, I'll be enough. Once I'm following the rules, I'll be enough. And the gospel comes in and obliterates the whole thing and says, you can never be enough. You will enslave yourself every time you try. But I will save you from that. And I will grant you freedom from that because we who could never be enough are saved by the one who is always enough. By Jesus Him. Self. Why is all of this important? If our main goal as intentionally belonging Christ followers is to go reach those who don't belong to Christ and draw them into intentional belonging, but we miss that purpose, we might see baptisms, we, we may see some professions of faith, we may hear some really cool stories, but we will almost always just help them rise up from the pit of sin just to throw them right back into the pit of legalism. And that is never God's intention of the gospel. Because at the gospel, it's you are not enough. But Jesus, who came, lived a perfect life, and gave himself up on the cross, died for your sins, and granted you his righteousness. So no matter how many good things you do, you will never achieve purity. But the one who is fully pure gives you his purity. 
No matter how much scripture you memorize and internalize, it will never be enough to earn God's respect. But the one who lived perfectly according to the law gave that up for you that you might receive his righteousness. And anyone that would then put their faith in that reality can be saved and brought into freedom where they are instantly and eternally secured in their salvation. But will have to spend the rest of their time grappling with what real freedom means. The idea of trusting in God's reality. So, so what do we do? And I think if I could just give an answer, the only thing I could ever give it comes back to just faith. How do you live a free life? You live in faith, trusting God's reality. And can I be honest with you? I, I struggle with this. Because there is a world out there and there is news and there's so many things that want to come in and force my reality to have a different perception, different perspective. And this is hard for me. So I go and I read Christianity's on the decline in Western countries. It's falling apart. By 2030, 2050, the church isn't even going to be, Christianity won't even be 50% anymore. I mean, just go out and look at your congregations. Every church we know is starting to fall apart. Everything's crumbling. It's all going to be bad. And so I sit there and I think about that and I start thinking, I don't know if you guys understand this or not, but like, this is my chosen career path. Like, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. If the church falls apart, so does my career path. That's silly, right? I get it. I know it is. But it weighs on me because I begin to think, what does it mean when I do have kids one day and I start to raise them up and the time they turn 13, there's not even a church substantial enough to pay a pastor. And so it's like, well, I guess I'm preaching for free and that's fine. I would do it anyways. But, and my heart begins to get drawn to this worldly reality of the church isn't going to succeed. Everything's falling apart. When God's reality is screaming over here, Philip, nothing can take away what I have done in this world. There is no presence, there is no evil, there is no darkness that could ever push this lightness away. I will continue to stay faithful. You see, freedom is trusting that reality. Freedom is trusting that I cannot contribute to the progress, the progress of the God's kingdom, but I can play a part in it through the freedom that God offers. This is what God wants us to live and to trust his reality. So what's the reality that you're convinced of right now that's just not true? I'll finally be enough if that person would just love me. I'll finally be enough if I could just get that grade. I'll finally be enough if I can just get that car. I'll finally be enough if I could just feel that emotion again. And the gospel's coming in and saying, you will never be enough. But the reality of God is that he sent the one who was enough to die for you. When's the last time you put your faith in that reality? Because church, what if there's a world out there that is grasping at straws for enoughness and they keep coming up short over and over again? Might it be that they'll respond when they see when they hear where true enoughness is found. That's the message we go with. That's what we want to teach when we say, hey, this is what it means to intentionally belong to God. So where are you? What's the reality you need to give up? Maybe you've never intentionally belonged to God and you want to do that right now. I'll be up here to pray for you. We're going to take a few moments, just worship and sing and reflect on what does it mean to intentionally belong to our Savior who has saved us forever how do we then live in that freedom? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness and grace. I, I pray that you would help us as a church to know, to know that we know what it means to be secure in our salvation. But God, let us not just proclaim the truth of salvation. Let us proclaim that so loud. But also let us be a church that draws people into what it means to live in freedom. Not the entangling, enslaving elements of secularism or sin or the enslaving elements of legalism 
but right in the just what it means to belong to you. Let us know freedom. And God, if there's someone in here that's fall, failing to trust your reality as they're blindsided by all the different lies this world is trying to peddle, God, give them the hope of trusting in you above all else. God, thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.